Oh God, we linger a bit longer in the sanctuary of this glad worship place. We've been much in worship. As now the Holy Scripture speaks in a way we hope will be clear for us. Open our minds, our ears, our hearts. You have your way. Instruct us as we begin a new journey today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what? After all the, the mounds, are you, are you following this, uh, the election campaign? I mean, police, this thing is interminable. After the mounds of hubris, that stinky pride, that have been accumulating through this campaign on television, radio, ad nauseum, it might be the right time for a new series of reflections on the subject of humility. I thought it would be interesting just to put on the screen all the people that we know of who have run for office this year, the coveted brass ring for president of this land. Look at them. You recognize some of the faces, some of them you don't even know, but all of them. I tell you what, just like our neighbor Muhammad Ali, all of these have said at one time or another, I am the greatest, I am the best, and you must pick me to be the number one leader in this nation. You know, sometimes, and I'm not going to tell you which candidate on that uh, screen, but there's one of those candidates, whenever I hear that candidate speak, I almost blush with the hubris, the, 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 just the ego that just ekes out of every statement. He's saying, what are you talking about, this hubris? Let's put it on the screen, hubris. It's a, a word in our dictionary, hubris. It's a noun. It means wanton arrogance arising from overbearing pride or passion. There's kind of this excess. And so we begin today a series of biographical sketches. I went back over your sermon surveys from last year. Haven't gotten to the ones this year yet. But from last year, and a number of you said, oh, do some biographies. And so we're going to do biographies. You asked for it, we're going to do it. Six, six biographies coming up here. All focusing on the, the antithesis of, of, of hubris, the, the very opposite of pride, and that would be humility. Humility. Now, I need to tell you, perhaps it's helpful to note it right here at the outset, that generally, not always, okay, not always, but generally, when a preacher preaches his heart out, when he tackles a certain theme, it is generally a confession that it is a subject which he struggles with. Or she. And so we begin a series today entitled, Not I, But Christ. Tales of Humility. Today's story, After the Thunder, Mist. After the th- oh, by the way, that's not M-I-S-T. That's M-I-S-S-E-D. After the, after the Thunder, Mist. So let's shift gears and let's go. I have never enjoyed... or particularly relished being the youngest face in the crowd. And I don't suppose he did either. When you have a baby face, it feels like you never grow up. You're always the boy. I suppose there comes a time when all of that plays to your advantage, when all of your cohorts are shriveled like prunes, but it is small consolation. When you want so very much to be taken seriously. And they treat you like a kid. John boy. And I'm not thinking of the Waltons either. 
John boy. Was that way for him? The boyish face of the youngest of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Karen and I just came back from Italy. We were in Italy last week. Uh, the quinquennial gathering of the church in Italy for a congress. It was such a joy to be with a, that center filled with Italian, Christian, Seventh-day Adventists singing their hearts out. Anyway, so we had three extra days to spend in Rome. Rome is, Rome is the capital of Christian art. It's the capital of Christian sculpture. You know what? It's just the capital of history, period. That's Rome. But you, you, you see them all over, all over the city, the, the statues of the apostles. And I'm telling you the gospel truth. Whenever you come in that little, uh, that, uh, that pantheon of apostles, you come to John. He's always, he's always portrayed with a baby face, beardless, obviously masculine, could with the hair that long, look like a girl. That's John. John boy. In fact, you remember this. Uh, Daniel Brown in that blockbuster uh, book of his, The Da Vinci Code, he's playing on the fact that Da Vinci in The Last Supper, not in Rome, by the way, The Last Supper is in Milan, but Da Vinci portrays John as with almost like a woman's face. I put it on the screen for you. And, of course, the whole plot of this fiction is that that's supposed to be Mary Magdalene. That's kind of a, under, a little secret we're passing along. And, of course, it's a bunch of hokey pokey. But uh, it's because John looks so, he's he just so young. So hubris, he's got it in spades. When, you, when you're a kid, you have to prove yourself. You have to climb to the top of that heap and you'll do anything to establish yourself as a macho. That's John. John boy. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We usually hide or reveal our inadequacies by our excesses. Napoleon, the neighborhood shorty, ends up growing up to become the European bully. Why? Because he's got he's to overcompensate for being such a short little runt. John Boy. Let's go to the first time John Boy appears in the synoptics by the Sea of Galilee. It is the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1. Find Mark. John comes on the scene here in the synoptics right by Galilee. This would be, if you don't, uh, you, you don't have a Bible, grab your pew Bible. Let me give you the page number here. The page number is 673. 673. Mark chapter 1. Uh, this is the first moment. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were what? Call it out to me. What were they? Come on, guys. These, these, are, these are fishermen. Being a fisherman wasn't high on the social ladder, but at least it was on the ladder. I mean, you didn't make a huge living, but you made a living. I have seen Simon Peter's home in Capernaum. They say this is where it was. At least he had a house. So they're fishermen. So Jesus comes upon these two fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men and women. Yeah, I've got to tell you, this is hardly the first time Jesus has met these men. They are, these young men are, have already met Jesus. They are already quasi-disciples. But the problem is they've been trying to juggle that, this young master that they're following and, and a career that they're trying desperately to build, so they haven't fully cut off yet. And Jesus knows this back-and-forthness has got to stop. I've got to have your full-time attention. And so today it comes. You're coming after me. Follow me. Of course you know who I am, and I know who you are. Come on, boys, let's go. You know these little slimy, silvery things that you're wiggling around? No more. I'm going to enable you to fish for human life. You're going to fish for souls. Follow me. 
Verse 18, and they immediately, this would be the two brothers, Peter and Andrew, they immediately left their nets and they followed Jesus. Verse 19, and when he'd gone a little farther down the beach, I've been along that stretch of beach in Capernaum. When he went a little farther down those rocks, because it's not a white sand beach, when he went a little further down the beach, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Because James, whenever James and John are, are, are listed together, James is perennially named first. We automatically conclude, rightly so, that James is the elder brother. John boy is the kid. All right. James and John. Now, they're also fishermen. They're, they're, they're the sons of Zebedee. And by the way, Zebedee does pretty, pretty well. This man does, because you'll note in the last verse, he has servants. So it's not just a father son deal. They have hired help. You got to be doing OK to have hired help. Right. As an entrepreneur, so they got it. Jesus, the divine master, he stops. Before calling these boys in that bobbing little skip, up and down, trying to get the nets ready for fishing again tonight, bobbing up and down, Jesus reads their lives. And the divine master knows before he even calls them. That, you see that elder one right there? The older boy? He'll be the first. The first. By direct order of Herod himself, he'll be beheaded. Number one. Be the first to go. And you see the little boy? You see John Boy? John Boy will be the last. He'll hang on with every last fingernail till he's the last to bear the reproach, persecution, and toil of loyalty to the Master. He'll be the last to go. Jesus looked into that boat and said, Hey, boys, you, you, let's go. Follow me. And immediately, verse 20, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And they went after Jesus. That's the calling of John Boy. I don't know. Maybe he's 19. Maybe he's 20. We don't know. He's just a kid. He's with his older brother, Jimmy. They're following this Jesus. Just turn one page. You can move from the calling. I just love this moment. The moment when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you a nickname. Did you ever get a nickname when you were a kid? Did anybody give you a nickname and has the nickname stuck? There's nothing worse than a nickname that sticks. If you had a nickname, I got a nickname with some cousins. And how would you like it if it wasn't just your parents or your cousins who gave you the nickname? How would you like it if God gave you the nickname? Oh, brother, it would really stick. That's what happens here. Just turn one page. Go to, go to Mark chapter 3. Turn one page. This is the moment now. Jesus finally has 12. These are, this is his inner circle of 12. He's going he's to appoint these. He's going to anoint these. This is a little ordination service we're going to have right now. And so it picks up here in John, uh, rather Mark chapter 3. Just turn that page to verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. And then Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and that they might that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. They're going to become full-time disciples. Just what you and I have been called to be, by the way. Full-time disciples. They're going to be full-time. And now we get a listing. I'm going to read a partial listing. He starts with, uh, Mark does, with Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Hey, I like you, boy. I'm going to call you Rock. Rocky. And then he turns. And who does he come to? <laughs> He comes to James and John. Look at that. Verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boranerges. It's Aramaic. It means sons of tumult, sons of wrath. We've kind of, we've, we've euphemized it into sons of thunder. You know what he's really saying? 
I mean, you try to picture this, ladies and gentlemen. We're having an ordination right now. This is a very serious moment, Lord. I'd just as soon not have a nickname today. But the Lord stops the ordination and says, By the way, before I put my hands on you, you know what I'm going to name you boys? I'm going to call you the Hothead Brothers. That's exactly right. I'm going to name you the Hothead Brothers. How would you like that? I don't mind a nickname, but if God gives me the nickname, please, I'll never get rid of it. And he doesn't. And by, by the way, how could the incarnate God pick out a nickname, nickname like that? What do you suppose led Jesus to say, you're, you're going to be the hothead bros with me? Why do you suppose he gives them the nickname? John did it the hard way. He earned it. Jesus has been watching these boys just from the beginning. In fact, Dr. Luke, in his gospel, he puts two of the hothead stories side by side, so it makes it really easy to read them together. So let's go to Luke chapter 9. You want to see the hothead stories? This is the evidence. Why would these boys be called the hothead brothers? Look at this. Go to Mark, uh, from Mark, go to Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. I hate it when a nickname sticks, don't you? Stuck for them. And now you know why. Now you know why. Look at this. Luke 9. Take a look in your Bible. Let's pick this up in verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's got to die in Jerusalem. He knows that. And so he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, these messengers, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Hey, listen. The master's coming. We need a little place to stay tonight. We'll need some food. And what happens? But, verse 53, the villagers, the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Picky, picky, picky. I want to tell you something. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years. The president just this week was in Palestine. And you still have the same contentious, if you're going there, you're not a friend of ours. Do you know what it used to be that if you had a visa from one of those nations in Palestine, you couldn't cross the border into the other. And if you had it from the other, you couldn't get it. It just was it just got worse and worse. Started long ago. Now, John. Boy. And James are big on superheroes. And they love history. You got to hand that to them. They love history. And when the messenger comes back and says, you know what? They said we can't even stay here. We've got to find somewhere else to sleep tonight. These boys go apoplectic. They just, they just explode hotheads that they are. And they pull a story right out of history. Oh, they, uh, Elijah was their superhero. And they love that moment when the, when the captain of the guard from the, from, the, from the battalion in Samaria brought those 50 soldiers. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven on those rebels. And boom, they're nuked. They're gone. And so Jimmy and John turned to Jesus and said, Listen, Master, just don't you worry about this. We will take care of this village just like that. Give us the word and we're going to nuke that entire town. That's exactly what happened here. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He said, You hot-headed, You hotheads. What is the problem with you? You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they had to go to another village. Can you believe that? Over a perceived slight, Jim and John are willing and ready to obliterate an entire village of human life. Just 
gone because you ticked me off. You're the sons of thunder. Now, the other story is actually just before this one that we read. So go up to uh, verse 49. One day they come back. They came back from one of their missions. And John said, hey, Jesus, ah, you're not going to believe this. I came across a man we did, a man who was casting out demons in your name. And you know what I did? I put that man in his place. I said, listen, you can't do this. You're not the follower of the master like we are. Cease and desist or psh. What do you think, Jesus? Did I do the right thing? Jesus answers in verse 50. When Jesus said to him, Oh, brother, do not forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. Come on, guys, time out. Hotheads. How often are we just like John Boy? Categorizing, oh, categorizing our actions as always very defensive of the glory of Christ when in fact if the truth were known, and it always is, I did what I did for the glory of me. I just won't tell you that. I'll say I'm doing it for Jesus. I'm doing it for Jesus. I have seen times when men and women would refuse to budge from a public position they have taken regarding some biblical truth and they're saying it's, I'm, I'm, it is in defense of truth when in fact it's in defense of pride and ego. I'm not backing down now. I've got books supporting this. I've seen marriages. I've seen marriages just unravel because somebody refuses Swallow his pride. Swallow her hubris. I've seen business associates broken. I watched, I have watched close friends severed because neither guy is willing to admit he was wrong. I've taken my stand, so help me God. And God doesn't help you. You're on your own. Actually, the apostles puts it this way. James and John had thought that in checking this man, they had in view the Lord's honor. But they began to see that they were jealous for their own. Just pretending. Pretending that this was, I'm doing this for Jesus. No, I realize I was doing this for me. I want to be in the inner circle. I don't want anybody else there. There's a little bit of John Boy in all of us, isn't there? Okay, jot this down. This is something from your study guide now. It's a very short study guide. Jot this down. Acts of the Apostles, page 540. Notice this. John did not naturally possess the loveliness of character that his later experience revealed. By nature, jot this down, he had serious defects. Serious defects. Yeah. By nature. You know what defects are, don't you? South Bend Tribune. I read the Tribune every day. They're, they're, here are all the products being recalled. Defect means there's something wrong with the thing. It should never have gone into the market. Can you, imagine, can, you, can you imagine like you and me being born with the defects already? God can't recall it. He says, I'm going to have to fix what's already there. Look at these. Look at these. I could not believe this list. Eight, eight defects. Jot these. You won't have to jot them down. Just count them in your mind. He was, speaking to John Boy, he was not only one proud, two self, self-assertive, three ambitious for honor. He was also impetuous. Boom! I'm, I'm ticked and I'm acting on this right now. He was impetuous. He was five, resentful under injury. He and his brother were called the sons of thunder. Number six, he had an evil temper. Number seven, he had the desire for revenge. Here was John's motif. 
This was his, this was his uh, mantra. I never get mad, I get even. Desire for revenge. I'll get back at you, don't you worry. Tit for a tat, I keep score. And number eight, what's number eight there? Mm. He had the spirit of criticism. All of that in the beloved disciple. Boy, good news for the likes of you and me, wouldn't you say? Hallelujah. Jesus, if you can do something in that kind of a life, would you please do something for me? You know, but what's so utterly amazing for me is that this John boy, with all his psychological and character defects, not only ends up in the inner circle of Jesus, get this, guys, he ends up the closest friend Jesus will have on earth. Actually, the apostles describes it this way. John enjoyed to preeminent degree the friendship of Christ. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Did Jesus play favorites? Is that it? Did he play favorites? You know what? I know I would not have been in the inner circle. I'd have been out there on the fringes. I understand that. So I can't help but feel for those guys. Because I remember the times in the gospel stories when Jesus would stop the group right here and say, Hey guys, hey, let's see. I'm gonna, I want you, Peter. I want you, James. I want you, John. You three come with me. We're going behind closed doors. You guys stay out here. The closed doors belong to Jarius. Behind those doors, he's going to raise a little girl back to life. And only three of them get to see it. I would be, I would, I would be feeling it. Why wasn't I a part of that group, huh? Well, who are these guys? When Jesus stops the group and says, hey, 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 Peter, I'll take you, John. James, come here, boys. We're going to climb this mountain. You guys stay down here in the valley. And up on top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah personally show up and Jesus is transfigured. I would be ticked that I got left out of that one. I'd feel it. Wouldn't you feel it? When Jesus says, I want to have some real prayer time now. So you guys, let's see, the nine of you stay right here at the gate of the garden. But uh, Peter, James, John, you three come with me. We're going to have a prayer, a prayer season inside Gethsemane. I'd have felt that. I'd have said, hey, is Jesus playing favorites? Is he? There's one more story I want to share with you. It's proof enough. He's not playing favorites at all. Go to the Gospel of Mark again. So we're in Luke. Go back to Mark. Mark, Mark chapter 10. Because one day, one day, James and John sidle up to Jesus. Sidle right up to his side and they say, Hey, can we talk to you privately, please? Peter? The rest of you? I want to talk to the Master. Just the two of us. Come on, come on. Yeah. That moment. They're going to spring something on Jesus. To catch him off guard, maybe we'll get what we want that way. And that's exactly what happened here in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, look, at, if anybody ever comes to you with this request, you just be forewarned. Something, something, you're not going to be happy with it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Anybody ever comes and says, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. Never say yes till you find out what it is. Jesus is brilliant. He's also gentle. And so he's going to let this thing play out. He says, okay, guys, what, what, what is it? He's looking at the next verse. What is it? What is it you want? They come to him in verse 37. They say, okay, you want to know what we want? Here it is. Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Want the top two positions? Two senior vice president positions, please. Right beside you. I love this. Jesus said to them, Guys, you don't even know what you're asking. Do you know what my throne is going to be? Do you know what my throne is going to be? It won't have a place to sit. I'll have to be nailed to that thing. 
You don't want what you just asked. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, be very careful what you pray for ever, ever, ever with God. You may just get what you ask for. Jesus says, hey, talk to me. Are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink? Oh, please. Yeah, of course we are. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Yes, indeed. Be careful what you ask for because they got exactly what they asked for. First guy to go, last guy to hang on. They both got it. You didn't want it that way, did you? Be careful. You better be serious what you're asking God right now. Some of you are in an earnest prayer season with God. You be very serious what you're asking Him because you may get what you ask for. They say, we're able. We can do it. Jesus says, let me tell you something. I love this. Look at this. Uh, uh, Verse 39. They said, we're able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But notice verse 40. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. Now, I'm going to put something on the screen that you don't have in your study guide. I want you to see this. This is from Desire of Ages. Take a look at this. In the kingdom of God, position is not gained through favoritism. It is not earned, nor is it received, through an arbitrary bestowal. It is the result of character. Isn't that some? Jesus is not playing favorites. This inner circle? No. It is a result of character. The crown and the throne are the tokens of a condition attained. They are the tokens of self-conquest through our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. You know, Jesus is so merciful to these guys, he could have just cut the legs out from under them. What kind of idiots are you? i got 12 guys following me. Who says you get the closest? He could have just diced them. But he doesn't. He knows that inside that earthy heart, there is an ardent love for Jesus. Jesus was always drawn to those who were drawn to him. He never played favorites. But if you want me, we're going to be the best of friends. He just wants to know, do you want him? You don't want him. He's not going to kick the door down. He's drawn to the people who are drawn to him. You want an inside circle friendship? You want an inside circle position? Be a friend. Get drawn in. You may end up... But it'll be the best thing in eternity for you. Draw near. I love that about Jesus. You know what Jesus is you, you know what Jesus is really saying here. You want to be the greatest? You become the humblest and you'll never want to be the greatest again. That's what he's saying. Look at this. Got to end with this. Uh, 41. Then the 10 heard it. And it says here, they were greatly displeased. That's a euphemism. They were ticked to high heavens. Those punks. They were greatly displeased with James and John, but Jesus called all of them, gathers the twelve, and he says, Hey, listen, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Remember that, by the way, the next time you watch this presidential campaign unfold. The great ones in the world of paganism, in the world of the Gentiles, the great ones achieve status. Jesus said, it's not that way with you. Look at verse 43. It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be among, be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever of you desires to be first will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, who could have asked for the top throne in the universe and already had it, 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The greatest are the humblest who don't want to be the greatest at all. Clearly, Jesus is nixing any favorite status notions. There's no inner circle here. I'm not playing favorites. Not you, Jim. Not you, John. Nope. Nobody. I'm simply drawn to those who are drawn to me. And he reads the hearts of these boys. He says, they want me. He draws all. Jesus draws all, but not all will be drawn. And by the way, that's the difference between John and Judas. Two disciples on the eve of Christ's death. It is Judas and John who press the closest to Jesus. Do you know this? Do you know this? That the top two positions around the Lord's Supper table are John and Judas? You know that? It's, now you think it was Peter and John, maybe James and John, Andrew and John. No, 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 no. The top two positions around that Lord's table are, are John and Judas. How do we know? Because Peter's sitting around the table. He goes, John, ask him. So John's right there to ask. How do we know that Judas was on the other side? Because Jesus dips that little piece of bread, that Paschal bread, into, into the dipping. And he says, the one I am is to, he's going to betray me. Judas and John making a play at the very end. But only one of them followed Jesus into the garden. Only one of them refused to run when the rest cut and fled at Jesus' arrest. Only John Boy made his way into the very inner courtyard of the kangaroo trial. And because there was a pounding at the door and he realized it was Peter, he goes back and he tells the gatekeeper, let him in. And he ushers Peter into the place of his great moral fall. Only John followed Jesus through the torturous long night in the early morning. Only John, of all the disciples, only John followed the Master to the summit of Calvary. Only John is left. So when Jesus, in his supreme agony, looks down and says, To whom can I give my mother? There's one boy standing there. He said, John boy, this is your mother. Do you understand? Take care of her when I'm gone. Only John. Everybody's gone. Something has happened to John. Some mysterious transformation has reshaped this hothead, this son of thunder, who's now willing to die. Peter said, I'll die. He's cut. Now, John, something... Would this be too much to conclude? Apparently, apparently, a daily prolonged exposure to the Savior can actually change... Your character. Huh? The guy has changed forever. Three and a half years. I tell you what, when I was studying this and doing the research this week, my heart just leaped because I got so many character flaws. I don't even know where to start with God. But here's, here's the good news that struck me. Three and a half years. You can go through an entire character transformation in three and a half years. Isn't that something? I used to think it takes a whole lifetime. I can't change in a lifetime. No. Look at John. Three and a half years, the son of thunder becomes a new man. And he never changes. He stays that way for the rest of his life. Guys, don't give up. Do not give up on what the Spirit of God is calling from deep inside of you, saying, you can change, boy. Come on, girl. You can change. I'll change you. Prolonged exposure with the Savior apparently changes 
the one who by beholding becomes changed. By beholding, we become changed. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's the greatest news in the whole story. Three and a half years, and he's a different man. Apparently, I don't have to be stuck with what I was born with. Apparently, the defects in my heart can be overcome with prolonged exposure to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you say to that, huh? Doesn't it make you want to say amen? Now, let me hear an amen from you. Oh, come on, guys. That's the good news. Matthew eleven twenty nine. put it on the screen for you. This is the great gospel invitation. Learn from me, for I am what? Let's, let's do it out loud. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. The NIV says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. I'm the humble one. Stick around with me, John boy. I'll change you. I've got to share this with you before I sit down. Sevenfold strategy. He has an eight, an eight characteristic defect Within him, eight-part defect. Notice in your study guide, sevenfold strategy. Here's how you can change. Here's, here's how I can change just like John. Jot it down. But day after day, in contrast with his own violent spirit, this is Desire of Ages, that classic. John, jot it down, beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus. He just looked at Jesus. You just keep looking at Jesus. Read a gospel story a day. Read a gospel story a day from the life of Christ. I'm working my way through Luke right now. Just read a gospel story a day. Behold Jesus. That's what happened to John. He beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus. He heard, number two, his lessons of humility and patience. You'll hear them. Number three, he opened his heart. Okay, God, do something. I am a mess. Do you understand? My personality is a mess. My character needs help. Do something. You just open your heart to say, God, do it. Number four, he became not only a hearer, but a doer of the Savior's words. So God, Jesus will say to you in your morning worship, you're going to do this now, and you're going to say, yes, Lord, I will. Just do what you hear. Number five, self was hid in Christ. Don't be like that alligator. You don't have to have the prominent place. Just stay where you are. God will change the world from that base where he's already put you. Number six, he learned to wear the yoke of Christ. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. And finally, number seven, he learned to bear his burden. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. And learn from me, Jesus says. And John did. And he became the humblest disciple of all. The humblest disciple. Hothead. The humblest disciple of all. How do I know? Clinching proof. Then I'll sit down. This will just this will blow you out of the water. How do I know? Because when John wrote the gospel, when John wrote the story of Jesus, listen to this. You will not find in a single place in the Gospel of John the name John. He has left himself out of the story. Oh, you'll find John the Baptist. You won't find John ever named in the story. Oh, isn't he, is he not in the story in the Gospel of John? Oh, he's there often. But he intentionally cloaks himself with a code phrase he will use five times in that Gospel. This is proof that when you go to Calvary in that prolonged exposure, you are changed. You don't have to wait till you're 80 to change. You can change right now. Here's the proof. I'm going to show you the first place it appears. This code phrase. John, this is our last text. John 13:23. Take a look at this. John 13:23. Never forget this. This is the proof John learned the lesson of humility. And if there's hope for John with eight serious defects... 
there might be hope for me and you as well. John 13, 23. And then there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. I, I know what you're saying. Hey, say, Dwight. That doesn't sound very humble to me. Uh, hey, by the way, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. What's so humble about that? Uh, because we miss it. We miss it in the English. We have to get it in the Greek. In the Greek, in the Greek tense, it's in the imperfect. And it goes like this. He was the disciple whom Jesus kept on loving. Write it down. That's how it's supposed to be translated. He kept on loving me. That's John's point. Five times. In my mess, he kept on loving me. In my short-fused fury, he kept on loving me. In my hubris and pride, he kept on loving me. And he drew me closer. And he drew me closer. And he can keep on loving you and draw you closer and closer. Five times. Code phrase. I'm the guy in the story that Jesus never quit loving. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Hallelujah. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? Jesus will keep on loving you. You go to the same Jesus that John went to. You get some prolonged exposure with Him every morning. He will keep on loving you closer and closer and closer to Him. You want to you sit beside me in the kingdom? You want to sit on this side? You come. You come with me. You be baptized with what I'm baptized with. You drink the cup that I drink. You get so close to me that we are this. Trust me, you'll be in my kingdom next to me. I want to be next to Jesus, don't you? I want to be next to Jesus. So I want to be just like John. I want to be next to Jesus, so I want to be just like John. Prolonged exposure to the Savior. I want to be changed. I got maybe three and a half years. Maybe I got two and a half years. I may only have a half a year left. I need to be changed now. Just like John. You want that? After the thunder. John's missing. He's missed. He's missed in the whole book. His name isn't even there. After the thunder, he's missed. There is a mist. The mist of Christ's humility. After the thunder in your life... There'll be the mist of Jesus' humility. Step into that mist. Step in. Not I, but Christ. Be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. You want that? I do. I really, really do. Let us stand for the benediction. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And we thought it would take forever. Oh, Jesus, what I pray for myself, I pray for this worshiping community. For every viewer, for every worshiper. May the prolonged exposure to who you are in the gospel story have a tangible, transforming effect on our hearts, our characters, our personalities, our lives. I want to be humble just like John, who is just like you. Grant that to all of us for the glory of our Savior. 
We pray in his name. Amen.